This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. This is a very exciting time for us. Who is us? I'm Doe, for starters, and I have in front of me a number of students, or my classroom, or in old language, a couple thousand years ago, disciples. Those who are trying to prepare themselves for entry into the evolutionary level above human, synonymous with the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk to you about the most urgent thing that is on our mind and what we suspect is the most urgent thing on the minds of those who will connect with us. We'll title this tape, uh, Planet Earth About to be Recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. This is Decoding Cult, and I'm your host, Palsy. You are listening to Heaven's Gate, Part 2. In this episode, we will look at the way in which Heaven's Gate grew and developed its beliefs within the changing times, how it ultimately ended for the away team, and how it impacted those lives who were left behind. During 1975, Marshall Hoof Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles, at that time known as Bo and Peep, started to gain a substantial following for their movement, Human Individual Metamorphosis or HIM, peaking at around 200 members. Bo, being the main spokesperson of the group, was charismatic and drew people in, but it was Peep who was the main masterhind behind all of the workings. Ex-followers would describe that she had an aura about her, that she was like an energizing light that made you want to be around her. But, as they did not have a decisive direction for their followers, many had begun to stray from their beliefs and even leave the movement. In the beginning of 1976, Bow and Peep came to the decision that they needed to stop recruiting and actually focus on those followers that had left. T announced, quote, the harvest is over, end quote. The call went out to all of the followers to meet back up with the two. 
Armed with their new practices, they laid out the way forward for the group. The two announced that they would now be referred to as Doe and T. They claimed that Herf was Doe, the same alien spirit that inhabited Jesus. And Bonnie was T, the spirit of the Heavenly Father. Doe and T are also notes in the musical skull, which could also be seen as a nod to Herf's musical background, and an homage to Bonnie's daughter Terry, as The Sound of Music was one of their favourite shared movies. The two said that they were soon going to be assassinated and be resurrected, and then the group would be able to go to the next level on the UFO. It was also made clear that T was ranked above Doe. They then reiterated the fact that all bonds with family and friends needed to be broken. This was apparently to keep them safe from an evil alien race called Luciferians, who were false prophets spreading evil on earth. To emphasize this, they quoted from Matthew 19 verse 29, quote, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times more and will be given eternal life. End quote. From then on, the followers were to have no communication with anyone outside of the group. Behind their backs, however, Bonnie Lou still continued to write to her daughter Terry every month, and on occasion even sending money. To ensure that they purify their bodies for the next evolutionary step, the followers needed to drink a mixture of water, maple syrup, cayenne pepper, and lemon, which to me sounds like something out of one of these new detox programs that are in fashion these days. They also had to take a multitude of vitamins and drink a protein formula. Their bodies were referred to as vehicles. The two also decided that they needed to change the names of their followers again. They gave each member a three-letter single syllable, also adding the word Odie at the end. They now went by Talodie, Legodie, and Winkodie. They were told that Odie meant a, quote, contraction of God, end quote. The letter Y was a diminutive, meaning that they were a child, because they had to grow and learn before they could graduate into the stars. They likened this practice of renaming to that of the Catholic Church, where nuns take on new names when they enter the service of the Church. They further explained that by leaving the old names behind, they would be able to focus more on striving for the next level and leaving behind their previous life. In my opinion, by shedding their names and taking on new ones, it solidified them more into the group and under the control of the leaders. The followers also needed to release themselves from anything that would tie them to the earth. These were things like entertainment, drugs, and alcohol. Their days were scheduled down to the minute, including instructions on how to do everything, even how they needed to shave. They were only allowed to watch certain television shows, mainly science fiction, one of which was Star Trek. Doe's reasoning behind this was that he would receive messages from the quote, next level through the show. End quote. But my opinion is that he's a fan of the show Star Trek and wanted to be able to watch it without having to field questions. They were also to let go of their gender and wore gender-neutral clothing and all cut their hair short, even the women in the group. Now, this bit is very interesting to me. As I discussed in the previous episode, Herf was struggling with his sexuality, and to me, I think he found great relief in the theosophical belief of foregoing gender 
In that way, I think he was able to kind of release himself from his inner struggle, and then having his followers do the same could possibly help normalize it for him. Doe and T had one more issue that they needed to resolve. They wanted to be the be-all and end-all for these followers. If at any point the followers should form firm friendships and turn to each other and not to the two, then they may lose control over them. So, in an attempt to stop this from happening, they instructed the followers to only turn to them with any question that they had, as only they had all of the answers. Doe went as far as saying to them that should they find themselves in a situation where they were unsure of what to do next, they need to ask themselves, quote, what would Doe do? End quote. They went a step further and broke all of the followers into smaller groups, which they referred to as star clusters. Choosing individuals who they thought would not form friendships within each of these groups. Within these clusters, followers would further be placed with a check partner. These check partners were paid similarly as they had been at the start of the movement, where they were paid in accordance with their sexual orientation. These check partners were to ensure that they stayed completely within the rules. Should a person have a sexual thought, this would be, as they term it, slippage, and would need to be reported to their check partner. Finally, they introduced the class. This was their version of astronaut training where the followers would gather to listen to the two's teaching for hours and learn to become these higher evolution beings. The followers were now referred to as students. They would also practice meditation during these sessions. For the remainder of the existence of the cult, they would refer to themselves as being part of the class. It was not all doom and gloom at the campsites, though. They also played their version of games, One of these so-called games was where a member would isolate themselves from the group. They would then be tasked to listen to the sound of a tuning fork while doing menial tasks. They were told that this exercise would help them to get rid of their human thoughts. The group went underground, moving from campsite to campsite to avoid being found. Under the rigorous lifestyle, Doe and T managed to weed out those followers who were not 100% devoted. 19 members were also asked to leave as they were deemed to not be dedicated enough to the faith. Some buckled under the pressure of the day-to-day lives and the strict rules and left of their own accord. This left Doe and T with 77 totally devoted members. In my mind, this is when they shifted from being a movement to a cult. We can find many cult-like references in the new rules the leaders lording themselves over the members and stating that only they have all of the answers, ensuring that members follow a rigorous daily lifestyle managed to the minute, gave them greater control and did not leave a lot of time for the members to reflect on their lives outside of the group, completely isolating the group and cutting off all access to media and the news, kept the members sheltered from outside influences, and even self-policing, where they needed to report anything that colours outside of the group's lines to their check partner. Furthermore, by getting rid of those members that were not wholly committed, they ensured that no one could persuade the rest into leaving. Surrounded by snow-peaked mountains, lush forests, stunning grassland, and run through with bubbling creeks, 
is Medicine Bow National Forest in the U.S. state of Wyoming. It is here where the two called their followers to assemble in June 1976, as they had proclaimed that this was the spot where the spaceship was going to come and take them to the next level. The followers had waited that whole evening, but the UFO never came. They explained to the group that the visit had been cancelled, but a dozen of the followers left the group very disappointed. This also caused the two to start doubting themselves and their own beliefs. Those followers who they confided this to argued that this was just a test and that they should stay steadfast in their beliefs. Those who stayed would move every few months to different camping grounds but remained underground. I'd just like to take a few moments here to speak about the absolute devotion of those followers that not only stayed but helped justify Doe and T's beliefs by encouraging them to carry on. Patrick Kahn's PhD wrote a book called The Betrayal Bond. This book is about unhealthy bonds that one forms with other people. In the beginning of the book, he speaks to the 14 signs that you are in a betrayal bond. Some of these refers to times where you keep believing false promises and where you keep overlooking broken promises. In my mind, the followers had given up so much and were so bonded to the two that they could not accept the truth and this drove them to urge the two to continue with their teachings. In 1977, one of the followers received an inheritance which was estimated between $300,000 and $400,000, which funded the group. They now moved from campsites into rented homes. Each star cluster lived together in their own home, which was called a craft, like a spacecraft. The kitchen was referred to as the Neutrolab, referring to nutritional lab, the bedrooms were called rest chambers, and the laundry was called the fiber lab. They also gave new names to other things. For example, your sex organs were referred to as plumbing. I think by creating a whole new vocabulary, they may have used this to disassociate the followers from anything that might tie them to the outside world. During this time, Doe's paranoia set in and he was sure that the government wanted to kill him, and that law enforcement was after him, so they continued to move from place to place, sometimes every six months. He put security measures in place, such as that only two to three members per star cluster were allowed out of the house to run day-to-day -day errands. These outings were referred to as out-of-craft tasks. This ploy obviously worked, as neighbors had no idea that there were any more than two or three people living in those houses at any one time. In the meantime, the families that were left behind were devastated by the disappearance of their loved ones. David Moore called his brother Robert one day in mid-1975. He told Robert that he was leaving all of his belongings behind and leaving for good. He further said that should Robin want any of his belongings, he just needed to go collect it, as David was only taking a few clothing items. Robert called their mother Nancy Moore, explaining the situation to her. Understandably, she was hurt and upset by the news, and tried to get hold of her son in any way she could think of. She eventually got hold of Lacey, a friend of David, who also happened to be a member of him. Lacey told Nancy that she was aware of why she was calling, and informed her that they were not to say farewell to their families. This gutted Nancy, and she pleaded with Lacey to reconsider. 
She said that she would respect any decision that David made, but being able to say goodbye was the right thing to do. The only thing that Lacey left Nancy with was a promise that she would think it over. To Nancy's utter delight and surprise, David and Lacey showed up at her door the very next morning. David told her about this amazing new group that he had discovered when he had attended some meetings. When she raised concerns around this, he explained that he wasn't sure if the movement was for him, but he owed it to himself to at least give it a try, and promised that if it was not right for him, he would leave. Nancy looked for any signs that indicated that there was any doubt in his eyes, but all she could see was sincerity. As he was an adult, there was not much that she could do about his decision. She offered them some food, and David and Lacey left with a bag of groceries. David did send her a postcard a little while later, just to let her know that he was safe with the group, but it would be a long time before she heard from him again. Nancy stated in an interview that for a long time she would ask herself, quote, Where is he? How is he? Is he alright? Will I ever see him again? Is he still living? End quote. As she chokes up during the interview, my heart goes out to her. I could not imagine ever having to go through anything like this. John Craig was a respected businessman and a pillar of his community with a devoted wife and six beautiful children. At over six foot tall, he was never seen without his signature Levi jeans and a cowboy hat. He was affectionately referred to as the Marlboro Man. Despite his happy life, John was always a spiritual seeker. A friend of his introduced him to the movement, and he was immediately taken by the idea. He had finally found what he was searching for. One week later, he secretly signed over power of attorney to his wife and lawyer and announced to his family that he was headed to Denver on business. What they could never have imagined was that he was actually leaving his family to meet up with the two. His family was devastated when they found out that he was never actually returning. Two months after leaving his family, he invited one of his elder daughters to a meeting hosted by the group. She attended and scrutinized her father's behavior, but could not find any indication of control within his personality stating in an article, quote, But he was very articulate, very animated. He was my dad, end quote. What did strike her as strange was the fact that she was not allowed to sit next to her dad or even walk alone with him to the car when she left. After this meeting, a few months passed and John had still not returned home or even contacted them, so the worried family decided to hire a private investigator to find him. The group covered their tracks so well that he was never found. On a side note, there were quite a few cults and religious movements emerging in the 60s and 70s. Distraught families had taken to kidnapping their family members from these cults and deprogramming them against their will. Nancy had an epiphany one day in 1980. She realized that she could not be the only family member who was worried about her child with in the group. She started to reach out to people in hopes of just getting any information on the well-being of her son. She soon got responses from people and even referrals to other persons who may have additional information on the group members. Nancy collated all of the information and started a newsletter and the family support network, sharing information with worried families. News of this newsletter filtered its way back to the group 
Doe and T were not happy with this, as they were concerned that members of the group might get taken back by their families. They came up with a plan to try and prevent this from happening. They asked David to call his mother. Unfortunately, she wasn't home, so he left a message on her answering machine. The message basically said that if she printed the names of families who promised not to kidnap their followers in her newsletter, those families would hear from their loved ones fairly quickly. This news elated Nancy, who just wanted to know if her son was okay. She printed the newsletter and soon many of their families received phone calls from their loved ones. This also prompted T to phone her daughter Terry. It would be the first time that she had heard her mother's voice in years. Little by little, the group was afforded more contact with the outside world. They were on occasion permitted to speak with their families and were even allowed to start working, although they were informed to keep to themselves and not be influenced by the human world. I reached out to one of the true believers to find out what life was like during these times as perceived by the members in the group. I guess they were skeptical about my question because the response that I received was, quote, We worked full-time jobs to pay for things and then spent the balance of times doing chores around the house. We listened to tea and dough at meetings they would hold now and again at the house and found it to be a wonderful learning experience, end quote. I can almost understand why they would be so protective over their lives within the group. In the book Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion, written by Benjamin E. Zeller, he notes, in order to understand these members, one needs to, quote, look at the world through their eyes instead of our own, end quote. He made further statements after getting to know the members that he had become very protective over them, saying, quote, he saw them not as members of a cult, but people struggling to find meaning in their lives, end quote. Life carried on as normal, well, normal by their standards. By 1979, the group had dwindled down to around 40 members. The practices and proclamations of the two seemed to be fluid. When they implemented changes, they would merely state that they had received messages from the next level, and that the next level only revealed secrets to them at crucial times when they were ready for these messages. Doe and T proclaimed that their spirits from the next level were not born into bodies, but they were in fact actually walk-ins. Now, walk-ins were the spirits from the higher level who came down and occupied the body of a person whose soul had vacated. So, basically, Herf and Bonnie's souls no longer occupied the vehicles, but Doe and T did. When I research cults, I often wonder if the leader truly believes what they are saying, and also if they ever have those moments when they are alone if they have doubts about what they are saying or doing to their followers. In Doe's case, we know that he had faltered once thus far in his beliefs when he was in jail. But what about T? The main leader of the group, Doe's check partner, and the driving wind behind the cells. As it turns out, she may have. In an interview with Terry, T's eldest daughter, she reads from a letter that she received from her mother, dated 16 August 1982, and emphasizes this section. Quote, Be good, strive for goodness, and by all means conform to society so you will have peace of mind. End quote. To Terry, who knew her mom best, 
She thought that this was her mother's way of saying that she wanted out. My humble opinion is that it also may have become tiring for her to keep up the face of being this next-level being and having to be responsible for all of these people. This will be the only time that there is any mention of such things from T to her daughter, or anyone else that we know of. In the early 1980s, T's right eye started giving her trouble. When it became unbearable, she decided to go and seek medical advice. The diagnosis was not good. She had developed cancer, and if it was not treated, she would die. At first the two did not believe it. How could T, this high-level spiritual being, get sick and die? They could not die. They were supposed to ascend to the next level with these vehicles. I wonder if that letter to her daughter was not also spurred on by the diagnosis. That she was maybe taking stock of her life and urging her daughter, in her own way, to have a better life than hers. Be that as it may, in 1983, T's eye was surgically removed in an effort to save her life. Whether or not this shook the followers is unclear. But it was the beginning of the end for T. In mid-1985, T started to experience discomfort in her back. At first she went to see a chiropractor, but this treatment didn't alleviate the pain. She eventually went to see a surgeon to see if they could sort the issue out. The surgeon could not find anything wrong at face value and suggested that they perform exploratory surgery. She checked into hospital under the pseudonym Shelley West to undergo the procedure. The surgeon found a huge malignant tumor in her liver. It seemed that the cancer had spread severely since her eye surgery. The news was grave. At the rate that the cancer was spreading, there was nothing that they could medically do for T anymore. Doe took her home, and with the help of a select few members and a nurse, they made her as comfortable as they could. A few weeks later, on 19 June 1985, Bonnie Lou Nettles, or T, passed away. She was only 57 years old. Her body was cremated, and in a small ceremony led by Doe, her ashes were spread over the waters of the White Rock Lake near Dallas, Texas. Doe was lost. His check partner, his friend, his soulmate for the last 13 years was gone. And now, he had to find a way not only to explain how it could have happened, but also how to lead the group by himself. He started by telling followers that T had to exit her vehicle early, as she needed to steer the ship that was going to come and collect them. One former member would later relate how this shocked him, because in his mind, Doe and T were supposed to leave with them. Doe sent the group away for a short while to go and see their families. I think he may have done this to give himself alone time to properly grieve his partner. And there are some that think that he used this time to regroup and refocus on the way forward without T. And things started to change quite a lot. It was also during this time that T's mother had passed away. Terry tried for ages to contact her mother to let her know about the passing. She struggled for weeks and eventually she found a phone number which she proceeded to call and to her surprise, it was answered. The person on the other side of the call was a member of the group. Terry asked to speak to her mom about a personal matter, but they said that she couldn't speak to her unless they knew what it was about. 
When she declined to tell them, they put the phone down in her ear. On 22 March 1986, while Terry was in her dorm room at university, she received a call. Two of the group members were at her front door, and they would like to speak to her. The two visitors introduced themselves as Don Sodi and Livodi. They started with small talk, which confused Terry, as she had no idea why they would come to see her. It was during one of the awkward conversations that one of the visitors mentioned that T's eye had been removed. This took Terry aback. She had no idea. In all of the letters she received from her mother, she never mentioned it at all. Then it hit her. She asked if her mother had died. They not only confirmed it, but then also informed her that it had happened nine months earlier. This news completely devastated Terry. She tried to reach out to Doe, but he never responded to her or returned her phone calls. A few weeks later, she received a cassette tape in the mail. It was from Doe. In it, he had explained what had happened to T. And I think, in a way, he tried to comfort her, but I also think it was more to comfort himself. The tape left Terry with more questions than answers. She never heard from anyone in the group again. Doe was lost without T, and this was even clear to members within the group. But again, those who truly believed rallied around him and encouraged him to carry on. I can relate this back to the betrayal bond that I spoke about earlier. What we also need to remember is that these followers invested their whole lives into the group. It has been found that when people have put so much of themselves or money or time into a group, they are more likely to will it to continue rather than face the fact. And the fact was that this was a waste of time or money or even their life. Doe, now having to lead the group by himself, repositioned his role as a sort of prophet for T. He described her as, quote, my primary, if not my total link to the Heavenly Father, end quote. He was now receiving messages from her from the next level, which he would then share with the group. He also brought about the idea that only he could bring the followers to the next level. Members must have experienced some form of cognitive dissonance at this point. Cognitive dissonance is basically when a person experiences mental discomfort from holding onto two conflicting beliefs. In the case of this cult, both T and Doe were supposed to help the group transform their human bodies to be able to go to the next level. Then, with T's passing, all of a sudden, they now needed to actually leave their vehicles behind to be able to move to the next level. The thing with cognitive dissonance is that the person shifts their belief to reduce their comfort and restore balance, which is why I think the members accepted this new thinking. In trying to keep control over the group, Doe decided that he would marry all of the members. The ceremony was simple. Each member would walk up to Doe, where he placed a ring on their finger and kissed them on the forehead. Now, usually in cults, this is where the sexual abuse starts to happen, but it was different in this case. As we know, they lived a life of celibacy, and actually tried to stick to it. In my opinion, this may have been a way to get even bigger commitment from the members to follow him, wherever they ended up. 
Keeping with their nomadic lifestyle, the group kept moving from place to place. One time, after watching Cocoon, a movie from mid-1985, where a group of elderly friends discover alien cocoons in a swimming pool, which rejuvenate them, and then they're ultimately taken with aliens on a UFO from a boat in the ocean, it was decided that the group would also be taken from a body of water. They immediately purchased a houseboat and started to renovate it. They waited and waited, but the UFO never came, and they abandoned this idea. In 1988, Doe had to relook at his strategy. The membership was declining, and he needed to get his message out there again. They started by mailing a statement penned by Doe to New Age centers and even UFO experts. This was not extremely efficient in getting the message out. Then, in 1991, Doe sat down in front of a camera and began recording his teachings. These sessions were called Beyond Human, The Last Call. In it, he proclaimed that the end times were coming and that only through him would one be able to leave the planet. These teachings were broadcast on satellite television on a show called Beyond Human, and this did lead to a few people joining the group. The group also set up a webpage designing business called Higher Source, which helped fund their day-to-day lives. On 19 April 1993, the massacre in Waco, Texas came to a head. If this sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it was the last day of the standoff between the Branch Davidians and the American law enforcement. I will cover this cult in a later episode. This led to a turning point in Doe's teachings. Doe rebranded the group, and they were thus to become Total Overcomers Anonymous. He became more focused on his end-of-days type proclamations, and this led him to take out a full-page expensive ad in USA Today on 27 May 1993 with the heading, quote, UFO cult resurfaces with final offer, end quote which warned about an apocalyptic event that was coming soon, and, in line with the new age, they also started using the internet to spread their message. With this, they even reconnected with some old members that had left the group, who subsequently rejoined. They even went as far as arming themselves in case the government came to, quote, take them out, end quote. But as there was not a huge focus on this particular group, that had fizzled out. In January 1994, the group went on the road again to proselytize. They went to 22 states, in which they visited a total of 63 cities. They used posters to announce the meetings, the heading of which was, quote, UFOs, space aliens, and their final fight for Earth's spoils, end quote. These roadshows brought more members into the fold. These members were treated a bit differently though. They would not have any interaction with Doe or get Odi added to their name until they had been with the group for a while and had proven to be loyal. Some of the members wanted to prove how loyal they were to the cause. At times, they would put forth the idea of castration to show how really committed they were to the celibacy rule. One day, Doe called his followers together and announced that he was going to be castrated and asked if any of the members also wanted to have the procedure done. There are many variations of the exact date, but loosely between 1993 and 1995, Doe 
and six other members of the group underwent the procedure. One evening, in 1994, Doe called the group to a meeting and asked if the members had any issues with using suicide as a method of exiting their vehicles. They would take something that would not be painful and put them to sleep. I think maybe Doe was tired of keeping all of this up. He even mentioned in one of his recordings, quote, I want to leave here. Now, I'm in a vehicle that's already falling apart on me, end quote. There were some very mixed emotions among the members at the time. Five members left after this meeting, but, as we now know, I don't think all of them were adverse to the idea. One thing that has struck me about the leaders of this cult is that when members did choose to leave, they were not shunned or criticized. They also didn't need to make elaborate escape plans to just get out. They would have a conversation with Doe, and if they were adamant on leaving, he would even get them a bus or plane ticket and give them some money to assist them. In 1995, the group purchased a former summer camp in New Mexico in the United States. They called it The Launch. They built their accommodations, or as they called it, Earthship, from recycled car tires. After a few months, they abandoned the project and moved to Phoenix, Arizona, as it was getting way too cold. On the evening of 22 July 1995, Alan Hale, an amateur astronomer, was gazing at the night sky in Cloudcroft, New Mexico, when he spotted a new fuzzy image while looking at a star cluster in the Sagittarius constellation. At the same time, Thomas Bopp, who was also an amateur astronomer, and a few of his friends were gazing at the same cluster outside of Phoenix, Arizona, when he saw that same image. The two men individually reported this, and the comet was named C-199501, Hail Bob. This comet would become visible to the naked eye from around November 1996. There was a lot of interest around this discovery, but as we know, the conspiracy theorists jumped on this, and there were some claiming that they had photographed a UFO in the tail of the comet. Obviously, this was all debunked, but the coming of the comet completely changed the trajectory of the group. Doe proclaimed that the craft identified in the tail of Halbob Comet was in fact T, coming to collect the group from Earth. But in order to ascend to the next level, they would need to leave behind their current vehicles to reach the UFO. It was predicted that the Halbob Comet would be closest to Earth on 22 March 1997, and thus the preparation began. They launched the Heaven's Gate website in 1996, which claimed that only through Doe and the group, through these gates, would one be able to reach the next level. This also became the group's final name, and would be the one that became famous, well, infamous. On this website was all the information that they wished to spread to the world. The group started to prepare to exit their vehicles in order to go to the next level. In October of 1996, the group which consisted of 38 followers between the ages of 25 and 72, and Doe, moved into a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe in California. On 26 January 1997, they collected 50 patches to add to their uniforms. These were later swapped out for Heaven's Gate Away Team. In February 1997, 
they purchased material for their uniforms and shrouds. On 1 March 1997, they bought 39 matching pairs of black and white Nike Decade tackies. They then embarked on a last road trip. They visited Las Vegas to see the Stratosphere, which is a hotel that looks similar to a UFO, and then also some animal parks and SeaWorld. The week before, 35 of the followers or class members sat down to do their exit videos. This video is just under two hours long. While watching it, what I mostly felt was complete sadness for these people, even though they all looked so happy and content with their decision. Most of them mentioned how grateful they were to Doe, T and the next level, almost like the next level was also a person. Sorodi, one of the members who had joined the cult in its infancy in 1976, stated, quote, This is the happiest day of my life. This is the answer to everything, end quote. Another member said, quote, We know what we are doing, and we are very happy about it, end quote. While even another member stated, quote, By dropping these bodies, we will receive the inheritance that we have been promised, end quote. The overarching message was also not to blame Doe, as they were all doing this willingly, and for the press not to twist their story. One of the more famous clips is where one of the members says, quote, 39 to beam up, end quote, to which everyone in the background laughed. At the end of the video is a statement. To me, almost like a last call as it states, quote, if you believe in tea and dough, and the information they brought. Pray to the Most High God, reach out to the stars, and pray for strength to press ahead in overcoming the world as best you can. End quote. The next section of the episode is a little rough, so if you are sensitive or anything might be triggering to you, I suggest that you fast forward over the next two minutes. On the evening of 21 March 1997, the group had pizza, their final meal together. They all signed out on the call sheet, some stating the return time as never, and on the landing page of their website, in big red letters, flashed red alert. This can still be seen today. Over the next three days, the group started to take their lives. They donned their uniforms with their Heaven's Gate away team patches on and packed a small bag like an overnight bag, and had five dollars and a few cents in their pocket. They prepared a mixture of applesauce or pudding with phenobarbital and accompanied this with vodka. Once a group had taken this concoction, they would lie down on a bed. The others would wait until they were asleep, and then place a plastic bag over their head and cover them with a purple shroud. Only the last two members did not have bags over their heads. Doe was not the last to go, but it is thought that he was within the last group. It's hard to know what was going through their minds at this point, but many people have stated that to them, the away team, staying on earth was the real suicide, and this was their way of reaching the next level. The group had sent out Doe's final message and their farewell messages to a select few members who had left the group. One of these members was Rio D'Angelo, 
who arranged with his boss to get to the ranch from his home in Los Angeles to see if it was true. Rio entered the house with a video camera and all he found was bodies. Among these was Thomas Nichols, who was Nichelle Nichols' brother. Nichelle had portrayed Uhura in the original Star Trek series. Rio's boss encouraged him to call the police, so he left an anonymous tip. The mass suicide was all over the news, and the families were left with broken hearts. Two former members were so overcome that they subsequently took their own lives after the fact. There are those that see this as a tragic case of suicide, but there are others that believe that it was one suicide and 38 murders. There are a few ex-members who still believe in the teachings and even keep the website going, but the images from the news reports with dead bodies covered in purple shrouds will be forever etched into people's minds. I don't know how many people believe in heaven or a version thereof, but I really hope that these people found peace and that, on some level, they found the heaven that they were looking for, even maybe on a UFO. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It'll go a long way in improving this podcast. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.